Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for CEO Exclusive, brought to you by Anona Enterprises. Welcome to CEO Exclusive, where we get emerging trends from CEOs and their most trusted advisors. And today's show, we're going to be taking a look at CEOs who are changing the world. Our world is changing, no doubt about it. Sometimes we get caught up in our own lives and businesses, and we don't take notice of the day-to-day miracles happening all around us. But then there are people we come across who make us wake up and take notice. Being the host of CEO Exclusive over the last year has given me the amazing opportunity to meet an abundance of truly inspiring CEOs. And I want to take today to share with you about the CEOs that I've spoken with this year who are truly changing the world. I had the pleasure of hosting Bruce Deal of City of Refuge and Michelle Rickett of She is Safe. City of Refuge is located in one of Georgia's toughest neighborhoods and provides housing, medical and mental health care, educational training, vocational training, case management, and a host of other services to some of the most vulnerable members of our city. She is Safe works to prevent and rescue women and girls from abuse and exploitation in high-risk places in the world, equipping them to build a life of freedom, faith, and a strong future. Let's listen to some excerpts from that show. Resources are being made available to individuals in crisis to help them never have to experience that crisis again. And so that's sort of new over the years. There have been some organizations that have been really good at that. Others have just been providing immediate felt needs, uh, resources for individuals that just help them right at the moment, but then there's no tools and resources and education given to them so that the future is brighter for them. And over the course of the past several years around the country, I've seen that a lot of organizations are turning to that to understand we need to meet the immediate need and help them in their crisis, but we also need to help prepare them so that they don't encounter that same crisis again somewhere down the road. So it's the the teach a man to fish philosophy? It is. It is. And and a lot more resources are being made available for that. So not only organizations adopting that philosophy and moving into it, but funders and supporters and volunteers are starting to understand as well. Let's do this now so that we don't have to encounter this person later. If we do encounter them later, we're going to encounter them coming back as a donor or a volunteer because they've taken the resources that we've given them. Use that so that their life has become better. Now they can give back to the same community they came out of. Now, you're saying that that's an intention, but it's actually working where you're seeing that a real permanent impact is being made on the lives of the people that you serve. Well, from our standpoint, it is working very dramatically. Uh, of our 80 employees today at City of Refuge, about 24 of those, uh, 24, 25 of those employees are former residents on our campus that were experiencing homelessness and crisis, lack of employment in their own lives. And so now they're back in their own independent living environments, working for us, uh, getting a salary on a weekly basis, able to take care of their children if they're moms. So we can see it up close and personal on our property that it indeed is working very effectively. Yeah, And that must make you feel really good that you can see the human impact of the work that you do. Well, there's not much more rewarding than finding somebody or encountering somebody at the lowest point in life and giving them the tools and resources and choosing to walk beside them because without somebody to accompany them on the journey, even the resources won't make them successful. We all need folks with us. So taking them by the hand and leading them on that journey and then seeing them become independent, self-sustainable, and giving back is, is the greatest joy that comes in my life right now as it relates to City of Refuge. And Bruce, tell me about how you feel like you've been 
um, successful in creating a performance culture at City of Refuge? Because it is true that nonprofits tend to have a reputation for being maybe a little bit loosey-goosey and, you know, touchy-feely and let's just sing Kumbaya and save the world. So you're saving the world, but you're definitely obviously have a performance performance well, I, ethic as well. Sure. I think there are a couple of things. Uh, number one, I think the personality of the leader often dictates how it flows down. And so, um, I'm very much a driven individual, so I expect that out of those who work with us. And so the fact that we are uh, sharing uh, resources, time, talent, and treasure with those in crisis, if we don't do that with a great deal of excellence, we're not going to set the right example for them and give them the tools they need. Uh, Another part of the reason I think we've been able to be successful is that is we happen to be a faith-based organization. That drives a lot of what we do. And so uh, the two key words that I've had for our 19 years of leadership are sort of from a scriptural perspective for me are passion and excellence. And so we either really feel this or we don't. And if you really feel it, then you're going to perform at a high level of excellence, I believe. And I believe as we model excellence, both in our individual lives as faith, family, fitness, and finance, those four areas I address on a regular basis. If, if I address those in my life, then I can teach that to my leadership team who then teaches that to the management team beneath them. And then we're able to model that for the residents and the consumers who come on our campus uh, with needs in their own life. And so just setting the bar really high and expecting folks to do that, not over expecting, but teaching them how to do it, not just setting the expectation and expecting that they'll figure that out on their own, but taking them by the hand. I, I mentioned earlier, taking the folks in crisis by the hand, but I also have to take my team by the hand often and say, we're going over here. And if you've never been there, let me lead you there first. So then you can go back and get the folks that work under you and lead there as well. So just creating this expectation on a daily basis, we're going to, we're going to operate with a lot of passion and energy, and we're going to do that in a really excellent fashion in every single thing we do from the appearance of the property to the way we talk to people, to the quality of food we serve in our dining hall, everything has to reach a certain level. How many people do you serve in a given, let's say, month or year? Well, those are hard numbers to track. About 10,000 a year come through our campus at some level. A couple examples. Last year, we we served 257,000 meals to those in crisis out of our kitchen, 180-degree kitchen. We housed about 1,000 homeless mothers and their children on campus over the course of the year. Uh, but we have a private school. We have culinary arts training program and a vocational training program with auto skills, uh, you know, the clothing closet and all those kind of things. So between all of the folks who show up on campus at some level of crisis, it's around 10,000 a year. And who who are these people typically that you're that you're serving? Well, our emphasis is on women and children. Uh, we serve men as well with not quite as many resources as we do women, but women can receive housing. They receive uh, food, they reserve clothing, Children's, uh, their children are able to receive the after-school program or daycare if they're not yet in school. They can also go to the private academy. They can receive medical care through our clinic that's on campus, mental health, vision, and dental. So they're folks that are in crisis, either already in homelessness or right at the verge of homelessness, uh, is, a lot of the, is the primary majority of our population. But we also have, and I know we'll talk about this some later, we have victims of trafficking and exploitation. We have pregnant teen homes. So it comes from primarily female population, moms, single women with children or without children uh, that have low support environments that they come from are primarily the folks that we serve on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Okay. Before we talk about the um, sex trafficking thing, I wanted to also introduce Michelle Rickett, who just joined us a moment ago. Um, Michelle is the CEO of She Is Safe, um, who uh, supports women and in around sex trafficking issues uh, on an international level. So, uh, Michelle, welcome. 
Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, so we always start the show by talking with folks about the trends that are happening in their areas of expertise. So can you tell us a little bit about um, what's happening with, um, with sex trafficking uh, and, in, in, uh, and at for, um, She is Safe? Well, I would say um, the world is awakening to uh, the plight of women and girls around the world. Historically, uh, women and girls have been used as property in much of the developing world, and that was certainly how I awakened to the life calling that we have at She is Safe. It was, uh, we were living uh, in East Africa and saw that girls were routinely kept out of school to work, marry, or be sold. And the more we delved into it, and this was in the mid-1980s, the more we realized it was a pervasive practice. Well, at that time, we didn't even have the vernacular for modern-day slavery or human trafficking. We just knew fundamentally this was an injustice against women and girls. Well, now the trend is the entire world has awakened to these issues and the devastation that it has not only on families but communities and countries around the world. So uh, the trend is an awakening, and I would say it's pretty much top-down because of the... uh, the way that the United States has spearheaded the initiative of um, garnering the support of countries together, basically there's a report card that almost every country in the world has signed on to the Trafficking in Persons report card, and it's tied to human rights abuses, and so if countries get a better placement on that tier, um, they actually are eligible for more international aid. So there's a lot of motivation and collaboration, uh, but most of the trafficking occurs on a very grassroots level. So while we're happy to see the trend from the top down, um, I would say the, the next really huge trend that I'm so excited about is the youth young adults who are coming up a college age are just not willing to look away from global human trafficking or locally. They simply must do something. Uh, You see the Indit movement in Atlanta where we saw, what, 30,000 college-age kids rocking the house at the Georgia Dome and saying, we're going to end human trafficking in our lifetime. It's a little grandiose, but I get it. Everyone's in sense. So what that means is this movement is going to be growing and maturing. So that's an exciting trend. I call myself a life change junkie. So I get so excited when I see one person who has a pathway to a new life and they're accessing that. So when Bruce talks about 10,000 people who are served every year, better off. Well, for us, we know the studies show that if you change the life of one woman or girl, you're going to immediately impact 26 other individuals. So there's a multiplying effect to that goodness. Uh, We prevent, rescue, or restore about 15,000 individual women or girls every single year times 26. That's so exciting to me. And once a woman or girl has this sense of dignity and purpose and that she can uh, have a whole new life with the help of heaven, she will not go back and her daughters will not be the ones on the street. So we've essentially affected the next generation as well. I I can't think of anything more exciting. Yeah, with the, you know, 19 years in, we have thousands of success stories now. So I have men and women and sons and daughters that 
Uh, I have young men that we started with when they were 10 years old who are now college graduates and have a job and are married and have children. And so we're able to look back. And so that's one of the ways I stay driven and, and uh, keep my hope is by looking at the success. I rarely focus on the failure. And uh, so just focus on, on the success. And, and one of the things that uh, doesn't always come across, I think, from nonprofits is, you know, our, our uh, mission statement is to bring light, hope, and transformation. That's not only to those that are in crisis, but that's to our volunteers and to our donors and to our partners from corporate and business and churches. And so your question about faith earlier, uh, you know, we host about 6,000 volunteers a year on campus from every kind of background you can think of. So some of those are faith, some of those are corporate, some of those are business, some of those are agnostic. I mean, we have folks from every environment, uh, mentally, uh, educationally, and faith uh, perspective that come on campus. Well, we think when they come on campus, and they're able to see all of our programs operate with the passion and excellence that I talked about earlier. That gives them hope. That gives them a belief that transformation can take place not only in people's lives that are identified as in crisis, but maybe in places of pain in their own life. And so they may come in with this facade that looks well put together, but they've got this own place of struggle, whether that be in their marriage or with their children or their own career, and being in a place of hope and healing that can translate into their life as well. And so that's one of the things that we stay focused on is not just the demographic of those who walk on campus saying they need help, but those who come on campus to help often drive away or ride away uh, having been helped themselves. And that's one of the motivations that keeps me going. Okay, now let's take a look at Dr. Parveen Jaglin of BLEP and Dr. Nathan Kaiser of the Keurig Institute. Dr. Kaiser treats victims of head injuries from all over the world and often partners with Dr. Jaglin, who's developed a state-of-the-art eyewear to help people with and without brain injuries deal with the new realities that we experience from the massive screen time, looking at computers and tablets and cell phones, and the effect that all that screen time has on our brains. Here's some of what they had to say. Sure. Um, so all digital devices now have gone backlit LED. And as we know, LED is a very intense, high-energy light source. So what LED does is it emits a high-energy wavelength, uh, which we call blue light, which is in the visible spectrum, from 400 to 500 nanometers. And there's a very large spike in the blue spectrum from these digital devices. And what that does is that it causes oxidative damage to the back of our eye. In English, what does that mean? Right. So basically, it's breaking down cells that okay. cannot regenerate. And the long-term effect of that is... It would it could lead to macular degeneration. Now, there's no long-term studies on this because a this is a new phenomena. As you know, it's been only it hasn't been that long where back LED lights have gone into computer devices, and we've gotten this influx where everybody's been using it. Because when I grew up, there were those CRT type of computers. It was a black screen with a green little, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, icons on there, and so now they're brighter and brighter and um, and so that's one aspect of it. The second aspect of it is that we are looking into a light and light can play a big role on um, causing headaches and eye strains. And now we're also accommodating. So we're looking close up for seven, eight hours a day. Kids are not playing outside as much as they used to. And so what that does is it causes digital eye strain because your eyes are constantly accommodating. What it means is focusing up close. So the way a human eye works is that when you look far away, it's relaxed. When you do close-up work is the only time the eye actually is working. Because traditionally, human beings are supposed to be hunters and farmers. You know, we're supposed to be outdoors doing things. And now 
we're spending all that time indoors. And, and so there's a lot of host of things. So long-term, um, we believe based on some of the independent studies that this could lead to macular degeneration. Um, short-term, it's over accommodating. Some lights can trigger, as Dr. Kaiser knows, is can trigger headaches for many people because they view these lights as flicker. So 10% of the population, it can trigger a migraine just like the old fluorescent lights would trigger migraines. And it's very intuitive to take some of these lights and, and bring the brightness down. And when you bring the brightness down, you think that you're helping yourself. And for some population, you are. But the others, it makes it actually worse because the more you decrease the brightness, LED devices work on a pulse with modulation. So they are actually turning on and off. So you're really just pulsing that light up and down, which can cause for some people a flicker phenomenon, which triggers a migraine. Mm. And, and Dr. Kaiser, in your work, what are you seeing with regard to... Yeah, um, so what, what Parveen's talking about with that accommodation is something a lot of people don't think about. But when your eyes move closer together, if you look at something close, it, it mimics the same reflex as though your body is traveling. So as though I'm in a car or I'm walking towards something. When you have people with head injuries, the area of the brain that gets injured is the middle part, kind of the oldest part of the brain, kind of we talk about like the thing everybody else on the planet has, right? So it's the stuff that is involved with balance and vision and, and knowing where you are in space. And when you have accommodation in a spasm where it's all the time. So accommodation it, is, is when you're... When you take your eyes and move them close together, right? So if you mm -hmm. look at something close, your right, eyes kind of cross. Go cross-eyed? Yeah, yeah, essentially. So yeah. if you have those eyes cross, it triggers the same areas of your brain that would perceive as though you're moving. So a lot of people that have head injuries feel that, you know, they can't ride in a car. They feel like they're moving. They get sick trying to read in the car or trying to do anything that involves that moving. So not only are we looking at things that are close, but we're getting a light response. And then for those people, it's just dastardly. So that's really where we've, we've found um, the BLEP lenses to be magic for people. And then the same, it goes without saying, people with light sensitivities, um, you know, get those, that same group or people that just can't handle a big light response, whether it be from you know, lighting in the room or even the sun, we've actually taken her technology a step farther and we give them to people to wear all the time, um, not just in front of the screen. We just give them to them to wear to, to dampen down the overall light quantity that they're feeling. And it's been, a, it's been a really good thing for us. Okay. So tell us a little bit more. Okay. So we now know, okay, the big thing that you're seeing is that we're spending you know, 20 hours, mm -hmm. however many a day on the computer and <laughs> it could be potentially damaging our eyes. But um, tell us a little bit about the technology that you've developed to, to help with that. Sure. Um, so once I did the research and figured out where this blue light is being admitted from these digital devices at what nanometers and then studying the blue light outdoors, studying where um, what also happens is that the blue light is what controls our circadian rhythm cycle. So what that is what decides us getting up and us going to sleep, which was traditionally regulated by the sun. And so there's a rise in insomnia um, and there's a rise in insomnia among teenagers because everybody is on digital devices before they go to bed. So basically, essentially, when the sun went down, your body started preparing for you to go to sleep. You know, it took a few hours. Your body started, um, you know, regulating and saying, okay, X amount of hours after the sun, the blue light is diminished, your body's going to ready to go to sleep. Well, well, now what we're doing is we're taking this blue light and blasting it in our face right in bed. 
And so that for some people, just like any other hormones, some people can be on digital devices all the time. It doesn't affect their sleep. And that's just like any other hormone. Some, some people have a lot of it. Some people are on that fence where it doesn't take a lot of blue light to just throw them over the edge and they could just be on it for about half hour before they go to bed and it affects their circadian rhythm cycle and they can't fall asleep. And so we looked at that. We looked at where the contrast sensitivity is um, for humans. And so I thought about all the different aspects. So we are the first and only broad spectrum blue light coating in the market. And what that means is that there's a, some other blue light coatings out there, but they're a very narrow spectrum and they don't cover all the different aspects that blue light affects the human eye and the human body. And so not only, um, so 450 nanometers is where blue light emission peaks from digital devices. Well, that's exactly where we target. So our peak reflections at 450 nanometers. The back of the eye, there's what we call macular pigment density, and that's sort of the defense system to prevent macular degeneration. Well, that peaks at 460 nanometers. We also have the largest amount of reflection in that category. And we also try to keep the circadian rhythm intact. So this way, we're also affecting the areas where melatonin is not going to get affected. So our advice is always just get away from digital devices an hour or two before you go to bed. My glasses help. They help a lot. But there's nothing better than just giving yourself some relief before you go to bed. Tom O'Brien and Jim Ross joined me in August of 2015 to talk about their company, Axion Biosystems. Team at Axion is developing technology that is making it possible to radically change the way pharmaceuticals are tested and even the way diseases will be treated in the future. Here's more about their work and their business. So in grad school, my colleagues and I were working on a technology that would allow us to get deeper insight into brain and heart activity in ways that could scale to industrial platforms. So we developed a tool that allows us to interface the stem cells that Tom was referring to and in essence collect heartbeats and brain activity, but instead of in the body, collect that activity in a dish. And by collecting in a dish, we can scale it, we can study it faster, and we can get deeper insights in a dish that you couldn't do inside an animal or a body. Mm-hmm. So tell me, what are the, the business implications of this technology, and why do, you, why do you think it's so important? Stem cells have been in, in the press a lot, um, and there's been some controversy about them, but why do you think that this is an important business so, this application. So, so for a couple of reasons, actually, when we started the business in 2008, um, one big trend was the desire f- to move away from animal studies. So it's it's called toxicity in the 21st century in the United States, and it's called reach in Europe. But there's actually a movement and, and legislation to move away from testing animals. So that played right into what we were developing, a device that would replace animal studies with with cells, whether they're animal cells or now the, the growth in um, induced pluripotent stem cells uh, since 2007 has really um, w- was the trend that, that really helped us. So it's, it's moving away from animals has been has been big for us. So you used a big word, induced pluripotent stem cells. You mind telling us what that uh, that is, Jim? Uh, it's known in the business primarily as adult stem cell technology. So it's the capability to take skin cells or blood cells and directly derive a person's cells from that. So what you can do is take, for example, we could take your blood and uh, roll it back into a more primitive state and then direct it into any cell type in your body. 
that actually has your genetic fingerprints, such that we have your brain cell or your heart cell. This has a number of advantages. One, it's a human cell, but two, it also has your genetic fingerprint, which leads towards patient-specific applications. So if someone's unfortunate enough to have a disease, we can rep and it has a genetic background or a genetic fingerprint to it. We can recreate cells that have that disease latent inside of that cell. So, so just another comment on that is, is this was really big because you may recall the controversy over embryonic stem cells. Right. This it completely erases all of that because it's, it's, it's non-embryonic. So you're getting these, these, um, these stem cells from adults. So we don't get the stem cells. So, so there's two ways to do this. So, so if you look at there's commercial companies, public companies now that, that create these stem cell lines, such as cellular dynamics and axiogenesis. So they create a cell line that, that's consistent and researchers can use to test drugs, for example. And then there's academics primarily that, that derive cells to, to, to test it, kind of the genetic fingerprints that Jim was talking about. So they're specific to patients as opposed to a cell line that can be sold commercially, consistent and used by people all over the world. And so your, your technology, what is it actually? What do you actually sell? So we sell systems and consumables. The, the system allows us to take measurements from these human cells and the consumables, what's actually physically interfaces those cells and where the, the signal begins. So and it actually allows us to collect ECG-like signals in a dish. So if you're familiar with ECG signals in the clinic and the doctor's office, you see blips that represent the heartbeat. Our instrument captures that same kind of signal with beating human cardiomyocytes. So inside these culture dishes, you'll have human cells. They'll physically beat. You can see them beating. And our instrument is detecting its electrical activity, just like a doctor would detect the electrical activity of a heart in the clinic. And so you sell the Petri dish? We sell the culture plate or the Petri dish and the system. Uh, so you culture the cells inside the Petri dish. It's a, a smart culture dish of sorts. In the sense that we have sensors embedded in the bottom of this dish that pick up that activity. Just like a doctor put leads on your body to pick up the ECG, our culture dish has little mini micro-sized sensors in the bottom that pick up that activity. And so you're saying cells have a heart have a, a heartbeat. I, I mean, obviously they don't have a heart, but they have these these electric signals that you can measure? Exactly. And are the results that you get from them as good as if you were testing mice or testing uh, people? Uh, oftentimes they're better than animals. So animals aren't very predictive. And so that means that you can study a toxic effect in an animal that shows toxicity in the animal, but it's safe in the human and then vice versa, where uh, a compound will show safety in an animal, but it gets to the human. In, in many cases, the animals do not predict what's going to happen in the human. And fortunately, to the other side of your question, it is very predictive of what happens in the clinic. So we see the same kinds of signal changes in the dish as you do in the doctor's office. Mm -hmm. And even more interesting is if it's patient-specific, if it's a patient with a particular heart condition, this cell technology and this device captures that symptom in a dish, and you can observe the same changes to that symptom and even figure out how to correct it in the dish before you apply it to the person. So you could literally um, start to develop therapies and... and um treatment on a patient-by-patient -patient basis because you would get that person's own blood and kind of break it down? Exactly. So Tom had highlighted the initial phase of this technology where it's most commercially used now is for research where we study how compounds affect the cells. I think Tom was alluding to the fact too that it goes further towards patient-specific therapies and then also another category of regenerative medicine where you're not using the cells to understand what they do, but using the cells to actually fix 
the human condition, using the cells as the drug. Oh, okay. So you, this is when you say regenerative, this is helping to fix things, as you said. Exactly. So, and, and actually, if I can, I'd like to go back to a reference that you made to a Petri dish. And I think a Petri dish implies a single well. And I th what's differentiated Axion completely from anyone is the, is the device that, that Jim and his colleagues created at Georgia Tech, where we have a multi-well plate where you can do 96 samples at a time as opposed to one. Because the technology we've had has been around for a couple of decades in the Petri dish type format. And you can't get any throughput. It's not, it's not scalable. What we've created is a product that's scalable, soon to be automated, and it has a lot of add-on features to it that are useful to both pharmaceutical, biotech, academia, government um, uses. I think on the technology side, now it's an exciting time for expanding the product. So the, the Maestro platform, this is the, plat the system that we sell that reads these electrical signals from cells, uh, is, is very much a platform in the sense that with software we can change how it reads the cells or what it's reading, what kind of information. So we're doing a lot now to further automate, uh, enable new kinds of readings from the cells and new modes of control. So it's getting quite interesting in the sense that we can not only capture complex brain activity, now we're developing tools that can control the brain activity at the same time, giving us deeper insight and, and allowing our customers to go deeper into different kinds of brain diseases or safety issues. Yeah, and so we're adding an automation platform that'll be out this fall where optogenetics is a big new field in neuroscience and, and a little bit in, in cardiac. But we'll, we'll have a tool that can be used on the Maestro so that you can control uh, brain cells and heart cells with light. Um, I think the, uh, the next product line, which is a, more of a medical device or diagnostic tool for nerve conduction studies, is in process and supported by the NIH. And we're probably two years away from commercializing that. Um, and and uh, as you may have heard, uh, GlaxoSmithKline is a huge pharmaceutical company that's investing in something called bioelectronic medicine. And what they want to do is take control of the peripheral nerves. And so we develop these microsensors that can be implanted in the body that can be useful for that market as well. So we're, we're involved in really dynamic and growing markets. And so while our core focus and our primary focus is our microelectric array technology, we have, you know, we have other pieces to this puzzle that can, we really can grow rapidly. We're right. also in the process of these retrospective studies where we take the technology and go use it to ask a question about whether or not it could have caught something that was fatal or dangerous. Uh, this is both to attempt the power of the technology and also help help uh, with human health issues. There have been a couple of case studies now they're working on where, uh, in fact, drugs that were acquired for over a billion dollars by large pharmaceutical companies that failed in clinical trials because they resulted either in fatality or hospitalizations are actually detected much earlier with that combination of human heart cells in our system. Folks from GV Financial have joined me on the show a couple times. GV is revolutionary in their approach to financial management. Sherwin Nelson Clemens joined me in September 2015 to talk about the company and their unique views on the intersection between money and happiness. I think they should be very aware of um, their reaction to what they're seeing in the marketplace. Um, we have a very unique brand um, category of wealth management that's called behavioral wealth management. And a significant a component of behavioral wealth management is this idea that it's novel, that we're actually human, 
And, <laughs> and as humans, we have um, very human biological reactions to what is happening around us that goes through our filters. And so those filters create biases. And so there's been um, a lot of growth in the domestic markets and the U.S. markets uh, from an investment standpoint. And as a result, seeing that strong bull market, it has been very difficult for some investors to feel like they're missing out, particularly if they are using principles of asset allocation and they have a diversified portfolio. And so um, it, it's, you know, I was thinking about it um, in just conversations we've been having with different clients and the level of anxiety and angst of potentially missing out um, on a significant uptick will often cause you to abandon sound principle in investing. And so that's something to be very careful about because it can um, cause you to react not being aware that you're having an emotional response versus which you will then justify logically um, and then make some pretty pretty significant changes in your retirement plans, your investment portfolio. That could be a big mistake down the road. So um, managing the emotions behind that, what we call this home team bias of seeing the U.S. markets do so well has been um, it's been a challenge. Um, and we often forget past trends that we've gone through when you, we kind of look at bubbles or look at high um, PEs and we want to jump in at just the right time, which is usually wrong because that's just how we're wired as humans. And so tell me about this, how behavioral wealth management works. So the fact that people bring their emotions into their investment decisions, I think mm -hmm. most people are kind of understand that, you know, the bubbles that we've seen in the past 10 or so years are a clear indication that that yeah. is the case. But when you talk about applying or trying to address that through wealth management, mm -hmm. what does that actually mean and how does that look? It's... um it's really interesting to me because we often will assess and see the bubbles, but we see it as a problem in other people and not in ourselves. So we rationalize our decisions that um, and say we're not being affected by our emotions. Um, and so with behavioral wealth management, what we realized after 10 years of really trying to really doing this, having a conversation, but not having a way to uh, name it, is that traditional financial planning and wealth management is about the dollars and cents. And what we are missing is the fact that we make decisions first from the most developed part of our brain, which is our kind of the, our ancestor brain where it says you sh it's, it, it goes into fight or flight. The reptilian brain. The reptilian brain, you know, and... um what happens in that situation is there's, you know, we say your CEO has gone AWOL. You're in a high stress situation. <laughs> and when that's happening, that's not a good time to make a financial decision. So your executive function basically has been compromised. It's been compromised. But because we are, because our uh, prefrontal cortex and our more developed brain has adjusted and developed in a way to help us reason and make decisions, we rationalize the decision that our reptilian brain has already made. 
And we recognize that um, when there's a high stress situation or a high stakes situation, science has shown that your ability to see all of your options is diminished. You can get tunnel vision. You can actually become hypervigilant. So we work very hard to help the clients climb down what we call that anxiety of wealth pyramid or to just get the oxygen back into the brain so they can think clearly. That's one part of it. The other thing is acknowledging that when you have life events, they have an impact on how you make your financial decisions. So life events could be moving. It could be becoming an empty nester, retirement, um, a big trip that you're making that was on your bucket list for many, many years. All of these create a an emotional response in us that we believe you should acknowledge in order to position yourself to make the best financial decision for yourself. And so we have over 40 tools and conversations that we integrate with the financial planning discussion as well as the wealth management discussion. Yeah. So that was my next question. When, uh, uh, so when somebody comes in with this, you know, their, their executive function is compromised. They're like, I want you to sell everything, right? Or mm-hmm. whatever the irrational, irrational statement or behavior is, I guess what I'm not hearing or not understanding is what does GB bring to that? So what we bring to that are first the acknowledgement that there is something going on um, with you that, <laughs> and so we probably are not in a good place to jump into having a financial discussion. So before we have a financial discussion, we may go through a few exercises to get you calm or to get you centered, or just to clean the palate. You may have just been frustrated from walking from our very confusing parking garage um, (laughs) into the building. And so a few tools may be um, a gratitude exercise. And that's simply saying, taking a moment, and we may do it with you and say, let's list five things that you're grateful for and why. And then at the end of that exercising, reflecting back over what you listed and acknowledging how you feel as a result. It has an amazing ability, ability to get you calm. Um, one is all, another tool is also called spotlight on the positives, where we ask you to look back over the last 30 days and list five to six things that have been blessings, achievements, things that you would consider to be positive and just recall them. And that has an amazing way of getting you centered and actually raising your happiness, um, set point for that moment. So you can make better decisions. Um, another one is confidence, which I often bring up in financial situations. So you come in and you're saying, oh, my gosh, I'm missing out. Sell everything or, you know, put it all on black, whatever the black <laughs> is for the day. And in that situation, I'm going to ask, what are you concerned about? And what are you concerned about? And what are um, you afraid of? And you may say, you know, I'm just missing out on what my friends are doing. So we may say, well, okay, that's fair. Um, that's one of the ways we as Americans like to determine success is comparing ourselves to others. So we may have you do a confidence exercise. A confidence exercise says that we're always on the edge of the unknown. And as we face an uncertain future, What is it that you have confidence in that you can make the right investment decisions going forward? And so we try to get out five to six. It's magical. Actually, the first three come in pretty easily. But fifth one and sixth one are often harder to uh, come about. But around that time, you start to think more clearly. 
then we can engage in what's really going on. Great. So, you know, it's very interesting. You describe all these conversations and um, all a lot of these tools that are around the behavioral, you know, around behavioral wealth management. One of the things that, you know, that I admire about GV and that I, that is, I think, a key part of your brand is you don't really, GV as a brand doesn't talk a lot about returns, right? You don't mm-hmm. focus a lot on we've made this person this much money or our portfolio performs this at this, this rate. Talk to me a little bit about that and how, how you've been able to accomplish that as a company when you're ostensibly managing people's money? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think we even struggle sometimes as advisors when we're having that conversation because people coming in the door, it's like, well, what's your return been? And it um, is largely supported, um, being able to move forward and, and, and advise in this way is largely supported by the fact that we have a very disciplined investment process that's run by a team and the research that they put into designing our portfolio so that we can then customize them for our client allows us to have this level of competition um, conversation with our clients knowing that the asset management piece is working the way it should be. And so it does take a tremendous amount of faith that our process for delivering on our asset management, executing the fundamentals that it is being followed. You know, so if I'm having this conversation with my client, I need to have comfort that my that the investment team is then providing the support we need to support the plans that we're working on. And so we manage um, as of May of this year, one point three billion dollars in assets. So uh, that's a tremendous amount um, for a firm of our, of our size. And I think it speaks largely to the impact that we make in putting into context what's important, what's most important. So we're not looking to beat any particular index. Our goal is to reduce the risk that our clients are experiencing and help them have a consistent return that allows them to do what they want to do long term. Consistent singles is the way we describe it. Consistent singles. Yep. Consistent singles. No home runs. It would be nice. But you have home runs and they come in different um, ways. So this year we've had um, a tremendous run in the domestic markets, as we were talking about before, when we did our asset allocation tactical changes in January. One of the changes that we made was increasing our large cap growth and um, value um, exposure. That's bode well. We increase it, but we're not putting another 15, 20% there. We're making tweaks along the way. And that's what allows us to do regular rebalancing, which we do on a monthly basis in our clients' portfolios, as well as look on a twice a year basis for trends, headwinds, tailwinds, and economic factors that will allow us to make those small tweaks based on PE ratios and different asset classes um, that allow us to stay ahead of the curve, but not make any big bets. So, you know, as you talk about these consistent singles, how do, how do you guys me- measure success? We measure success about based on whether our clients are truly using all their wealth to create the life that they want for themselves and have more fulfilling lives that impact their communities. Joe Perilli and Brad Avery of Honeycomb Cargo joined us on CEO Exclusive in September 2015. 
Pirelli was inspired by the need for a safer way to transport hazardous materials and out of a desire, grew a partnership with Avery. And they have a truly revolutionary and strategically sound approach to hazardous material transport. Out of their desire to serve others and provide a safer system, Avery and Pirelli are committed to transforming that industry. Yeah, interesting question. We think um, in the in the transportation of hazmat, um, we've we've got an opportunity to really be disruptive. There is a existing infrastructure that's about forty five years old in terms of design and architecture, and we found that it's it's um, exposing the environment and the communities along the rail line to some serious risk. Um, in probably most of the um, listening audience is, is not very familiar with the hazmat transport environment. But if you've followed the media in the last few years, there have been a number of horrendous disasters, sorry, occurring um, across the country and, and across the North American continent. Um, one in particular a couple of years ago in uh, Lac Magentic, Canada, in Quebec, um, took 47 lives. Was and that the big explosion? It was a huge explosion. Right. And it was really unfortunate. It was something that could be avoided. Um, and the net of it is that there are a number of tanker cars, 300,000 or more of these tanker cars traveling the rail line today, and they all have an inherent design flaw. And that design flaw is, if you look at, I'm, I'm going to use a bottle as an example. If you use um, uh, a bottle as a single entity, Plastic bottle. Right, the yeah. plastic bottle, or in the case of these tanker cars, it's a 30,000-gallon metal vessel, mm -hmm. and it's a single entity, meaning that when it crashes and it penetrates, 30,000 gallons are exposed. And when you're pulling hundreds of them, it's, it's millions of gallons. And if it's toxic and gets into the, oil, into the uh, air, into the water, it's extremely dangerous, obviously. If it's explosive, a flammable three liquid-like crude oil, it's, it's devastating. Huge explosions, loss of life, significant damage to the environment. So we looked at that, and um, as we were trying to solve that problem, we started thinking back about, you know, ways that uh, other problems have been solved by thinking out of the box. And the net of it is we came up with a solution that's a distributed architecture. So rather than having 30,000 gallons in a single entity, we have a distributed architecture of multiple smaller elements in that same aggregate of 30,000 gallons in an intermodal design. So we've got it um, in boxes, if you will, that can be placed directly on a flatbed rail car. So today's technology is... So I'm assuming that's a honeycomb. That's the honeycomb concept. That's yeah. right. <laughs> so it's really a combination of three elements. There's a, there's a distributed architecture in a cargo hold. And then there's a shock absorbing element that goes around it. So if you think about, um, so it, is this only good in, uh, in rail situations or is it good for other, for, um, other movement of cargo as a well? Hu a huge, uh, applications well beyond. We originally started focusing on crude oil because that's what was driving, mm -hmm. um, uh, the attention in the media and it's a huge problem. But we realized quickly that it's any hazardous material, ethanol, um, so companies like, Clorox or Georgia Pacific or Dow Chemical, anybody who's moving any kind of material that might be toxic or hazardous would be interested in something like this. Mm. Um, so not only the rail lines and, and the people who are actually moving the product, but the end users mm. or the producers of those solutions. So 
Now, Brad, do you have a, a sense of what the decreased risk is? So what do you have a sense of of if uh, companies that were transporting these hazardous materials were using this honeycomb um, structure instead of the single um, vessel structure? How many of these disasters are how much like how much less likely it is is it for an accident to happen well yeah we, we haven't reached proof of concept at this point but based on some of the i guess we've done our own tests our own field tests and based on those field tests we have seen significant decreases um so imagine um imagine that you have a case of you know, we, we were talking about one one bottled water, but imagine you had a case of bottled water. And that would be considered a, a distributed architecture, correct? Mm, right. you know, instead of having one big, huge five-gallon jug, right? Uh, and, and then imagine some sort of impact on that case of water. What happens to those vessels as you have that impact? They basically spread, Correct. And so you might have uh, something that punctures maybe one, maybe two of those bottles, but it doesn't doesn't affect all of them. And, and as a matter of fact, some of the vessels themselves protect the other vessels because the force is shoving into those other vessels and pushing them out of the way, correct? So if, if you take that concept and, and apply it, uh, it basically protects, in, in my mind, it protects probably 90 to 95% of the cargo at that point. And that's a significant increase. When you're talking about one vessel, which you lose 30,000 gallons, and then where you could protect, you know, as much as 25 of that or more, uh, that's a significant increase. And imagine that, that, that that's a money savings, but that's also an environmental saving there, too. And so, Brad, and, and as you're you know, pulling all these relationships together, you know, kind of getting your um, your powder, you know, getting your powder dry and getting ready to, to you know, get the, get everything to explode. Because I imagine once you're, you get that um, regulatory approval, you're going to have a, a lot of fairly big relationships coming through. How are you thinking about this, uh, this kind of interim period? You know, what are you guys doing as you're waiting uh, and waiting and waiting? Well, I think... It- not with, waiting. Yeah, it, <laughs> we're not waiting. We are actively waiting. You know, yeah. um, anytime you are looking forward to something, you're, you're doing it with with energy, right? And uh, and you're you're not sitting by and just uh, sitting on your hands. Uh, you're 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 doing things to uh, look ahead, beyond. Um, uh, basically, uh, in a nutshell, you know, we're we're looking at the possible challenges that we could see beyond, you know, these initial relationships uh, that we we create and form. Um, but, you know, we're also continuing to design. You know, we're, we haven't, you know, found a few designs and said, okay, that's it, we're done, we've, we've reached it. And, and there's, because there's so many different applications for our design, we have to continue to innovate and design, especially for all the market segments. So uh, there, there's a lot of work that has to be done there. Obviously, we have to socialize. We're continuing to socialize. Those relationships, you never know um, what one connection can do for your business. Uh, it, it, things that may not you know, they may not be obvious to you. You know, some people go, oh, if I had that relationship, boom, we'd take off. 
you know, sometimes it, it comes in through the back door. You just never know those small relationships, those small steps, those are synergistic and, uh, and they move you forward. Um, and so you have to continue to work on those angles uh, and really, uh, you have to continue to remain positive. You know, there are setbacks in life and there are setbacks in business, right? And, uh, and those things, you can use those as, as positive motivation. You can, you know, some people are effective negatively and, and, you know, they kind of take their shots and they sit on the sideline for a little while. Uh, or you can use the negative and, and you can use it as a positive and, and work around it. And, and really that's what successful businesses do. That's what successful people do. They take the, the negatives, the failures, and um, they find a way to, to, you know, succeed through those, find a way to do it. With so many changes occurring in the medical industry, many patients are finding it difficult to receive the care that they need. And doctors are finding it difficult to deliver that care. Dr. Elena George of Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat is committed to finding a better way to serve patients. There's a movement away from doctors, from commercial insurance, from Medicaid, from Medicare. We are done. And it's about direct contracting with the patient. That's the future. Great. And so concierge medicine? It's not concierge. That's another misnomer. People think concierge, you think a couple thousand dollars a year. We're talking subscription, membership-based medicine. Direct pay practice, $50 a month covers you for everything that's done in the office for as many visits as you need per year. That's what we're talking about. Right. And so do you know of physicians who are, who are starting to move to that kind of a model? Me. <laughs> I'm uh, one. And there are plenty across the country. Um, if people go to aapsonline.org, there's a list of doctors across the country who have moved into a direct pay practice model. And Anything that an independent doctor can do to keep it in their office means that we cut the middleman out and we keep it cheap. And if you have less need for billers and people going after the insurance companies, you've cut your payroll and you can pass that savings along to the patient. I mean, it's amazing. It, I mean, people won't believe this when I tell them this, but if you use your cash to access health care now, it's cheaper than using your insurance card. You can cut deals from hospitals to surgery centers to labs to doctor's offices, it'll give you 70% discounts, but you're getting better care. That's, that's what's going on, but people just don't know about it. So Frank, have you seen this, this model where you can subscribe and, and how does that actually work? Let's say if you need specialty care. Yes, I have seen it. Um, I, myself, uh, I very much appreciate the difference between the subscription model and concierge, but I just joined a concierge model, um, which is, um, a very nice thing for me. Um, but it, it, I think it's important to recognize that the um, growth of the subscription model is absolutely here. It's growing r rapidly. A and I'm incredibly for that. But it also is important to recognize that to a certain extent, you've shifted the cost right back to the patient, which is what you were trying to avoid. Even though there's a discount to the patient, which is significant, the patient is the person responsible for paying. It used to be that the insurance company was the party responsible. Now it's the patient. So all we've done is just shifted the burden. But at least in my understanding, because I'm paying the insurance company, I'm still I'm I'm actually paying. Yeah. It's just that I'm pooling pooling my payments with a whole bunch of other people to decrease the risk. So just for clarity, can sure. you guys describe the difference between concierge medicine and this subscription model that you're talking about? Concierge generally is more expensive. That's the one major difference. Um, I think that this 
direct pay is more of an every person's kind of practice. I don't care if you're working class. I don't care if you're, you know, white collar, blue collar. Most people can afford $50 a month. They're paying five or $600 a month to carry a piece of plastic. And then they have to add on $2,000, $5,000, $10,000 deductibles. This is a fraction. And, you know, that's the, I personally think the problem is that you have a middleman that's inserted themselves between the doctor and the patient and wants to take care of your payments. But there's a cost to them. You have to pay them for the management of your healthcare dollar. But they're taking a double dip from it. It's much cheaper to go directly to the doctor and tell, I have a sliding scale in my practice. I barter in my practice. I do membership based and I, I'm kind of a hybrid. And if someone comes in, doesn't have insurance, I will make a deal with them. You know, we'll have a sliding scale. You're not going to get that with an insurance card. You're not going to get that with concierge. It's a flat fee. Whoever doesn't meet that hurdle to get into the practice doesn't get in. So this is more from, from my standpoint. I want everybody to be able to access quality health care. I don't care if they have means or not. And ultimately, it's about having skin in the game. But you're, you and your doctor are partners. It's not you working against each other. It's not you resenting your physician because you have to come out of more money out of pocket than you, than you have. And you've been paying right along. I understand the mindset. I'm paying $1,000 a month. What am I getting for it? I don't blame a patient for thinking that. And there's another model which exists that, again, people don't know about. Under the Affordable Care Act, there's something called um, membership. I'm sorry, I'm um, drawing a blank on it, but it's, uh, it's Liberty Health Share is a version of it, but it's medical cost sharing. That's another model that people don't know about. And so, all right, so we have concierge, medical cost sharing, and subscription. Concierge, from what I understand, is, you know, there's a, a doctor who says, you know, I don't want to take insurance anymore. I'm going to have a small core group of, of patients. They pay me $2,000 a month and they can come see me anytime or I'll go to their house or go to their office and, and, and see them. Mm -hmm. The subscription is, you know, you pay $50 a month. You can come as often as you like, but it gives... But a lot more is in-house. So okay. instead of having to send a patient for labs, it's done in the doctor's office. It's included in the subscription. They have a means for laboratory, for EKG, for x-ray. It's really a one-stop shop. So you, and a pharmacy usually. So you keep the cost controlled because your, your group or your practice has all of the benefits within it. Okay. And what about medical cost sharing? How does that work? That is a consortium of patients or individuals all over the country who pool their resources and they, they volunteer to pay each other's medical costs. And so you're pooling a huge amount of monies and it's covered for anything medical, nothing cosmetic, nothing frivolous, just what you need. And that would include cancer care. It includes vision, dental. They even expanded in Liberty HealthShare model to holistic care. So you, they, they go in front of you to the hospital, to the doctor's office and pre-negotiate a rate. And you can go to any doctor, any hospital you want to. All you have to do is present your card. And the cool part about this is that the maximum out-of-pocket is $500 per year for Liberty HealthShare. I actually joined as a member because I felt this is the way I want to go. I want to control my pocketbook. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. And I'm paying $199 a month. And if I were a family, it'd be $349 for a family of three and above and $500 per individual. Now I'm covered at a million dollars per year per occurrence with $500 out-of-pocket. 
that trumps anything I could have gotten in the commercial market where I would pay 6000 10000 out of pocket. And that is the fee-for-service model in a nutshell. And I'm a physician, and I take Liberty HealthShare patients, and this is what I love about it, and I think every doctor should know about it. They have a pre-negotiated rate for doctors, hospitals, surgery centers, 150% of Medicare for an office visit, 160% of Medicare for a hospitalization, and 170% of Medicare for a procedure. That trumps anything a doctor will get with Medicaid, Medicare, or any commercial insurance. I don't have a pre-cert for my patients anymore. I can call them up. What's this membership? What is their their cost sharing, their their shared amount? Have they met it, the 500 bucks? After that, I'm covered, and I get paid two weeks a month. I'm happy as a clam. I want to see these patients every day in my office because I can be a doctor again, and I can actually afford to stay open, and I can love it. Spending half an hour, 45 minutes with the patient now instead of seven minutes and sign a chart and out the door. That's not what I went to medical school to do. So this, um, the medical cost sharing is basically a, a group of people who decide to self-insure? It's not insurance technically. It's a membership. But it's written into the law, into the Affordable Care Act, that anybody who's like-minded, it used to be religious-based organizations, now it's anybody who like-minded people join their resources together are covered under that model. So as a member or my patients who come in, I don't have to worry about a fine because I'm covered under the Affordable Care Act, but I'm not covered in the same way. That's the difference. And so, Frank, are you thinking that these kinds of alternative business models are going to be um, the future of medicine for doctors' practices? First thing I want to do is congratulate Dr. George for her flexibility and uh, dedication to patient care, just finding a way to make it work and make people better. Um, that's a wonderful thing. Um, yes, I do think that people are going to get creative because they have to. I mean, um, we are not yet faced with an outbreak of health. So as people get sick, they're going to find creative ways to make them, to help get themselves better. And doctors are going to find creative ways because you still have, you, I mean, the basic problem is you still have people that are sick. You still have doctors that enjoy the practice of medicine, have the skill set and the dedication and the attitude that makes them want to help those patients get better. And so those two parties are getting together and creating ways to make the financial side of the relationship work. And that's kind of, you know, what capitalism is all about. Lately, there's lots of talk about millennials and the unique ways that they like to work. But the truth is, many employees are looking for more flexible jobs that will allow them to get more out of their lives. Whether they're looking for more time to spend with their family, freedom to pursue a passion, or just a way to work creatively on their own terms, many people are seeking new forms of flexibility in their employment. The team at MomCore is leading the path to making that freedom a reality for so many people. Well, it's very timely that you would have us on because we actually just released a survey that we do every other year on workplace flexibility, and uh, we released it typically around Labor Day. Uh, and one of the biggest trends that we're seeing is that uh, 75% of the folks that we surveyed said that um, when they're looking for a job or whether they're looking to stay in a job, uh, workplace flexibility is 
high on their priority list. And the interesting thing, though, is that most people think, well, there's two things. One, people think that workplace flexibility means part-time work, which is not necessarily the case. And the second thing is most people think that it pertains mostly to women. And in our survey, what we found is workplace flexibility is just as important to men as it is to women. So that's one of the interesting things that we found that we're seeing. The other thing is, is that people who um, took part in our survey said, you know what, flexibility is just as important for people who have kids as it is for people who don't have kids. And one of the trends that we're seeing is, you know, and there's always a lot of talk, obviously, around millennials and things like that. And as they move up, and it's interesting, I read an article on Forbes recently that talked about um, 30, about 37% of the workforce now, the management side of the workforce is millennials. And those are the folks kind of driving the behavior around workplace flexibility and demanding it a little bit more. And it isn't necessarily because they have kids. It's also because they have other interests outside of work. Um, and so for us, what we see is we see a lot of folks who want flexibility, maybe because they have kids and they need a reduced schedule. But we have folks that come to us and say, I don't want to be on the road anymore. I got to get off the road. I'm a consultant. I'm gone three to four weeks out of the month. Or, you know what? I live in Alpharetta and I'm commuting all the way down to the airport. I don't want that kind of commute. I need more flexibility. Um, or you know what? I don't want to be an employee. I like to be a freelance. I like to be a consultant. I like to work different jobs all the time. So the, those are the trends that we're seeing. So for us, we define flexibility in terms of time, place, and duration, which are some of the things I just described. So Tom, so that was going to be my next question is, is what does flexibility actually look like? And so can you just talk to us a little bit about maybe some cases of, of you know, what flexibility looks like in terms of time, place, duration? Sure. Yeah, so time um, would be like if you had a, uh, a modified work week, um, it could be that you work maybe like seven to four. It could be that you um, worked, you know, reduced hours, obviously, as part of that. Um, and then place is virtual or maybe it's some in the office and some you know, telecommuting, um, which we're seeing a lot of too, especially with traffic issues here in Atlanta. A lot of companies, and I would, to just be honest with you, I, I see probably a little bit more of that, I would say, in the, in the smaller businesses that we work with. They kind of get the concept that you can work anywhere, anytime. In the larger companies that we work with, we see pockets of that. Um, it's definitely starting to evolve. And then, um, uh, which say time, and then duration. Duration could be contract work. So, um, and we see a lot of that with the larger corporations that we're working with that, um, you know, they, because the contract labor comes out of separate budgets. So, um, you know, they have projects or initiatives that they need for six months or 12 months or three months, whatever. And so, and then we have a lot of folks who just, they like that kind of work. They like the fact that they don't have to commit to a job for five years. They like that they can commit to something that works for them for the next, you know, six to 12 months. And so what do you think, thinking are the implications for, you know, CEOs who are typically our listeners as they think about the, you know, recruiting and, and being more attractive or retaining the talent that they have? So going back to our survey, the, the fact that I made the comment that, you know, 75%, so three out of four employees basically are 
thinking about workplace flexibility and thinking about what it means to them as a job. And 47% of the 18 to 34-year-old population said they have thought about leaving a job because they didn't have enough flexibility. So as you think about retaining particularly your top talent and the, the folks that you rely on the most, you got to keep flexibility in mind. And I would also say that you got to find out what that flexibility means. Does it mean working still working 40, 50 hours a week, but maybe working from home one day a week? Or does it mean modified work hours, you know, letting somebody come in at seven and leaving at four, um, you know, anything along those lines? And Allison, can you weigh in on, this is Allison O'Kelly, can you weigh in on on, on the changes that you've seen since you started started uh, MomCorps? Oh gosh, there there have been so many. I mean, it used to be that when we when we went into a potential client um, and talked about what we were doing, they looked at us like you know we were talking another language. Where now it's really top of mind. Every employer knows that it's an issue and that it's a concern. Um, now they're not all implementing it, uh, but we are seeing that, that there is an understanding and whether they're doing it or not, they're very curious to understand what other people are doing out there. So that's, you know, a really good sign. Um, you know, also the recent survey that, that Nicole was talking about, you know, we had been seeing trends that were showing that, you know, uh, of course people wanted it more, but employers were also giving more flexibility, not necessarily in the same proportion, but, um, but, you know, we were seeing positive trends. Um, our most recent survey looks like, like that might be declining a little bit. So that is concerning. However, given, you know, the economy as it's been the last few years, um, it's not surprising. Hopefully, uh, as we are recovering, we'll start seeing more, uh, employers beginning to offer it again. But, but I mean, it's a, it, it's a big, big, um, change from what we saw way at the beginning where nobody really, um, you know, when you said flexibility, people assume that meant part-time, um, where we've learned that it's just so much more than that. And employers also understand um, that it's more. So they're not quite as, uh, you know, turned off by the concept at the beginning. I hope listening to these CEOs inspires you as much as it does me. And even more so, I hope it encourages all of us to get out there and find our own way to make a lasting difference in the world. Thank you so much for listening to CEO Exclusive, where you get emerging trends from CEOs and their most trusted advisors. This show is brought to you by Anona Enterprises, where strategy is your access to money and performance. Learn more at anonaenterprises.com.